Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's another 10 Things episode with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. This week, the two of you talk about the Supreme Court. Article 3 of the Constitution created a system of courts, including our Supreme Court, but the Founding Fathers did not go into great detail about how they thought the court would operate and its way of operating now would really have disappointed Thomas Jefferson. Yes, Jefferson did not like the court, did he? He liked courts, he wanted them to be independent, but he didn't want the justices to be independent of the nation, and he said you can look in vain in the Constitution to find the doctrine of judicial review or judicial veto. Today we talk about the historical function of the court, the court in 2022, and suggestions for the reform of our judicial system. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? And I must say good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Sir, I have an unpleasant topic to speak to you about, and that is the Supreme Court. You had concerns about the court, and frankly, sir, as a citizen in 2022, so do I. Well, I wasn't one of the founding fathers who created the Constitution in 1787. And when you read it, it does not appear that the courts are going to be that powerful. But my cousin John Marshall, in a famous case called Marbury v. Madison in 1803, actually installed a sort of doctrine for the court that the founding fathers did not intend, so far as I know, and that's the doctrine of judicial review. And in that case, he said that it was the province of the Supreme Court to determine what the law is and what it isn't, and that when a positive law, a piece of legislation, was at odds with provisions of the Constitution, it was the duty of the courts to step in and veto that legislation and say that it's void because it violates a certain clause or a certain principle of the Constitution. And I'm not 100% against that power, but that's an awful lot of power to put in nine unelected, unaccountable, and indeed unimpeachable men. Sir, let me present this situation to you. In a case where the majority of the American public have one view and the court has another, well, how do we reconcile that, sir? Well, the court has a different function. It, it, it's not meant to be a political arm or a popular arm of the government. So let's say that in a time of war, the legislative branch passed a law saying that nobody can publish a pamphlet or a newspaper, period. The court would then step in and say, wait, the Constitution under the First Amendment gives people the right to freedom of expression, to freedom of the press. This law is a violation of this more sacred code, the Bill of Rights, that was ratified in December of 1792. Therefore, this is bad law. So we understand that the, there must be the power of the court to say when legislation violates a key provision of the Constitution. The question is, how deep should that power be? And are those justices in any way accountable to the American public? It's an interesting example that you present, Mr. Jefferson. Let's say hypothetically that a majority of the American public said, no, we do not want any pamphlets about the war being produced. Well, this goes against the Constitution. What about the will of the people? Well, the will of the people was distilled into the social compact called the Constitution of the United States and its amendments. That will 
triumphs over any temporary legislation. So if, for example, we wanted to curtail the publication of newspapers or pamphlets or broadsides, that would require a counter-amendment, an amendment that would either clarify or overturn the First Amendment of the Constitution. Obviously, there are situations in which freedom of the press must be, to a certain degree, curtailed. But it's a near absolute, and the only countermeasure, if you really despair of the First Amendment, would be a counter-amendment. So what you're saying is that the American public, if they're in disagreement, their recourse is to go through their elected officials. Am I hearing you correctly, sir? Yes, but their elected officials are not free simply to pass a, a popular law. If that popular law violates the Constitution, it is void. Let's say 95% of the American people want the Catholic Church to be the official church of the United States. That would be an enormous popular majority. But the court should then step in and say, no, the First Amendment guarantees freedom of religion, and it prohibits the establishment of any single religion or religious sect as the official church of the United States. The court protects us from our own fanaticism, or our own irrationality, or our own momentary impulses by reminding us of deeper codes that were ensconced in and ratified by the Constitution of the United States. Put it in simple terms, it sounds a bit messy, but it is the best we have. It is, but the Founding Fathers did not exactly spell that out in the Constitution. And the courts took on much more power, I think, than they were entitled to have. There has to be a final arbiter, but who will protect us from the court if these unelected, unaccountable, life-tenured people continue to interpret the law in such a way as to deliberately counter the will of the majority of the Americans. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir. citizens and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week it's another 10 Things episode with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky and the two of you have chosen to speak this week about the Supreme Court which I think is very timely and I was going to suggest before we get into your 10 Things list maybe the two of you could uh, present our listeners with a short history of the Supreme Court. Well, it's in the Constitution. So Article 1 is about the legislative branch. It's the fullest of the articles of the Constitution. Article 2 is about the executive branch. It's not as uh, exhaustive as Article 1, but pretty detailed. And Article 3 is about the judiciary. And the most important thing, as I pitch it to our dear friend Lindsay Trevinsky, is that the Founding Fathers didn't provide a lot of detail in Article 3. That's correct. Although I would quibble with you that there's a lot of detail about the executive, but that's not our topic of discussion today. So our topic of discussion is the Supreme Court. And it says it's basically like two sentences of description in the Constitution. It says the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. 
The judges, both of Supreme and Inferior Courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall at stated times receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. A lot of people would hear that and go, what? That That's it? That's all? Yeah, the only other thing is that it says, you know, how they can be removed, and that's about it. So, David, just one quick thing off the top. There's a glaring clause there that must be reckoned with as we talk about the future of the court, and there is a glaring omission there. The glaring omission is a designation of the number of Supreme Court justices. The Constitution makers offered no help with that one. There could be three. There could be 3,000. That's a determination of the legislative branch. And the second thing is uh, the positive clause that says that they shall serve for life on good behavior, which means for life, unless they're convicted of some terrible crime or malfeasance. And there has never been a successful impeachment of a Supreme Court justice. So once somebody is confirmed, if they choose to, they will serve for the rest of their natural life. And there's nothing that can be done about it by way of legislation. If you wanted to change that, a lot of the reform commissions are saying we should have reduced terms to 18 years or something of that sort. That would almost certainly require a constitutional amendment. So, interesting. Well, I'm not actually sure that's quite right. And let me How tell so, you what. madam? <laughs> I know, it took me all of like I saw you 30. waving your pencil like a <laughs> school marm there. How, know, how was, is that not quite I was, right? I was scolding you. Um, Scold. It took me all 30 seconds to do so. Um, so it says that they may serve, it says that they shall serve for life, but it doesn't necessarily say what that service shall be. So for example, many of the higher district courts, they have a emeritus option. So when they get older, if they do not want to have a full judicial load, because what a lot of people don't know is that while judge positions can be very prestigious, they are not always cushy. They can be very, very hard work. So if some of the, especially if they're in a very busy district, like the ninth district is a very busy district. The so-called jumbo district. Yes, exactly. So some justices, once they get to a, excuse me, some judges, once they get to a certain point in their career, they will take emeritus status, meaning they basically receive a pension. They will take a reduced caseload. They will step in in the event of emergencies. And they are, in theory, still serving life terms in good behavior, but they're not necessarily hearing the same caseload that they were before. So one of the arguments for reform, and I know we're getting all out of whack here um, before we've even started our first number, but one of the options for reform is to include an emeritus option such that, let's say, after 18 years, justices would automatically go to emeritus such that they would not lose their compensation, they would not lose their health care, they would not lose their position, but they wouldn't necessarily be hearing cases. And there's some disagreement among legal authorities about whether that would require a constitutional amendment because it wouldn't be taking anything beneficial necessarily away from them. Right. I'm waving my quill back at you, madam. Okay. Because that would be adjudicated by guess what? The judicial system. (laughs) Um, And so I think that they're going to be strict constructionists on this one and say that if you wanted to change that, don't roll your eyes. I'm no, I'm not rolling my eyes at you. I'm rolling your my eyes at strict construction because they have a tendency to whip that out when it's convenient. Wow, that, I'm not even going to try to unpack your metaphor. But my point is that it almost certainly would take an amendment to the Constitution of the United States. I know this is a lively question in reform circles, but 
at any rate, it won't be easy. Let's put it that way. I'm still, I'm still trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> Come on, you're going to use that kind of a metaphor. It really wasn't intentional, but yeah. <laughs> if I may take control of this. Yeah, well, gone into the let gutter. Me just bring up, <laughs> it's a First let Amendment me just problem up now. The, let, me, let me just go to point number one, point which one. is uh, the first Supreme Court's job figuring out its role. I'm anxious to hear you both talk about this. Well, first, let me just say that in 1789, uh, the first Congress of the United States essentially filled in the blanks for the Article Three of the Constitution. They, they created the infrastructure, some of which we continue to live with in our own time. So they realized that the founders had been tired when they did Article Three, and we're ready to go home, and it was going to need more structure than that. And so the 1789 Judiciary Act is absolutely essential. And guess when that came, Lindsay? 1789. Yeah, who that was president? Question. Oh, excellent. You're passing the baton to me. Of course, George Washington. Um, so what I love about the creation of the first Supreme Court is that it is the perfect way to understand how much of the system is created after the Constitution the ink dries. It is such a continued work in progress. And 1789 is a great example because not only does Congress pass the Judiciary Act to create basically the third branch, it creates the executive departments and it passes the Bill of Rights. So I'm not sure that a session of Congress has ever beaten that record and it's pretty remarkable uh, tenure. So uh, the first Congress passes this Judiciary Act. There are now going to be justices and president has to appoint them per the terms of the Constitution and the Judiciary Act. Washington selects his justices. He does so very intentionally. He looks for two things. One, they're supposed to be supporters of the Constitution. Kind of makes sense, right? But nonetheless, this ratification has just happened from 1787 to 1789. So he's not going to appoint people who are opposed to ratification because that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. He was also very intentional about selecting justices from different parts of the country. He wanted geographic to make sure diversity. Yes, he wanted to make sure there was geographic diversity, so different states felt that they had a voice and and uh, representation in this new system. He did so for his cabinet. He did so for other appointments as well, and he filled out the first Supreme Court with the first Chief Justice being John Jay. I don't know how much evidence there is to suggest this, but um, some people seem to at least think that he gave Jay the option of choosing between Secretary of State and Chief Justice, because Jay at that time was the acting Secretary of Foreign Affairs. Exactly. So just a couple things on that, Lindsay. First of all, all hail George Washington. Obviously. You know, by, by taking this as seriously as he did and sort of thinking it through, how should I people it? How should I populate it? and wanting geographic diversity, wanting to choose the best people he could find with judicial temperaments, but people who believed in the Constitution, not Jefferson's brand of anti-federalist. But it should be said, and I know you're the person to explain this, that the court did not have the prestige at that time that it subsequently had, and people kind of thought once or twice about whether they wanted to take on this role. That's absolutely right. So initially, being on the court kind of stunk. It was not very well paid. The prestige wasn't there right away. They were away from home and in very uncomfortable circumstances for a big chunk of the year. And so it was not particularly pleasant. And so initially, Washington could get some people into the court, but they didn't stay very long. It was unusual for justices 
for the first couple decades to stay more than a decade. There are, of course, some aberrations, and we're going to get to Marshall John, in a minute. John Marshall, among of others. Of course. 34 but, years. <laughs> but for the most part, they went pretty quickly. And in fact, when John Jay came back from his uh, tour in London negotiating the, the Jay Treaty, which we've discussed on previous episodes, he resigned and decided to run for governor of New York instead because that was a better position. So just to give people a sense of sort of the hierarchy of roles here, it was very much not at the top. And they were still trying to figure out what they were supposed to do. So there's this great moment in 1793, I think we've talked about, but I'm not totally sure, where Washington's trying to figure out how to manage neutrality and what that looks like. He's working with the cabinet on on this question. And Jay regularly meets with Washington and Hamilton behind the scenes all the time. But Washington decides that he wants to discuss this issue with the entire Supreme Court. And initially, Jay is gung-ho about it, but says, I should probably talk to my colleagues. And once they get together, they basically say, no, that would be inappropriate. We can rule on a case, but we cannot provide you with advice. That is not our role. And that doesn't happen until four years into his presidency. So there's very much a sense of they're kind of figuring it out as new circumstances come up. Washington, needing some wise counsel on questions of neutrality at a very uh, tense moment in American international affairs, decides to turn to the Supreme Court and says, I'd like to bring you in as a, as a partner in, in thinking this through. And Jay and his colleagues wisely said no. Our role is reactive. We should not be part of the policy branch of government. It's the separation of powers really requires us to stay separate. We do not want to take on that function. We will look at things that rise to our level through the, the court system, but we do not have original jurisdiction except in very narrow circumstances. And we are not wanting to breach this doctrine of separation of powers. This is one case where the Supreme Court was wiser about the Constitution than Washington himself. And we can imagine a very different history of America if they had agreed to this and, and presidents routinely turned to the court and said, I'm thinking of uh, a dreamers uh, program for uh, children of, of undocumented uh, workers. I'm thinking of maybe uh, putting people in internment camps during the war. What do you all think? The court said, no. We'll react, but we will not be part of the policy generation machine. That is mostly true, although there have been times when the Supreme Court has not followed that very wise guidance. There have been times when the Supreme Court has telegraphed, including, I would say, the last five years, have telegraphed in their decisions things they would like to see coming. And it basically sets the ball rolling for people to bring forth cases. It's time for us to take a short break from this conversation. There's a lot left on the list, and we'll get to it in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, a 10 Things episode with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky, and we're talking about the Supreme Court. One of the things you touched on, Clay, that is on the list, and I'm going to bring it up now, is the flexible number of justices over the, the, the history of the court. Right, so I can just give you the very short history. Six, five, six, around the time of the Civil War, nine, some a few times a little more than nine. Uh, FDR attempted in the 1930s to increase it to 13 or perhaps more, but it has been basically a norm, capital N norm, of our constitutional system since just after the Civil War at nine. But the Constitution is silent on this question, so Congress could, if it wanted to, double the number of justices or cut them by two-thirds. Uh, the norm is a strong norm, and I think the American people are very conservative about that, but it is not explicit in the Constitution, is it, Lindsay? It is not, and I would add one more uh, quick amendment to that description, which is that from 2016 to 2017, we had eight. So um, it is an ongoing evolution. Uh, it is The Constitution is very much not explicit. It has been changed for political reasons in the past. So, for example, uh, Jefferson wanted to reduce it because he didn't particularly like the Federalist justices. Republicans wanted to reduce it after the Civil War because they hated Andrew Johnson's justices. So I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the number of the Supreme Court has almost always been political. I would very much like to know from both of you how you feel about the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Is it something that should be tampered with? I think we should keep it at nine. Nine is an uneven number, which is really important. That's about the number of people that you can reasonably kind of keep track of. I wouldn't enlarge it. I certainly wouldn't reduce it. I just want to go back to Jefferson's administration and wag my finger a little bit at Dr. Chervinsky. Jefferson inherited a six-man court, but then Congress, to mess with him, reduced that number to five so that he wouldn't have a chance to name a justice if one retired. So this was a, one of the first political attempts by a party to play with the number to prevent you know, we saw it with the Merrick Garland um, instance uh, in, the in the Obama administration, but this has happened a number of times, including during Andrew Johnson's administration and others, where the, where the Congress, if it has the majority, attempts to change the number either for its own advantage or to disadvantage the opposition party. And what did Thomas Jefferson do about the Judicial Act that Congress had passed? He repealed it. And, and did that have any effect on the number of judges? Yes, but he repealed it because, it, A, well, we, now that that sets us up for circuit riding, which is really cool. He repealed it. Circuit so riding the, stinks. What? Okay, would you like to say Maybe you'd like to explain. Place? Why don't you explain circus riding okay. first? Did you say circus riding? Yes. <laughs> it was circus riding. Circuit that was, riding. That's a, that is a much better description. Okay, circuit writing, there were, when the when Congress created a judicial system, they recognized that it was unfair to ask all citizens to go to Washington, D.C. for cases. And under the concept of a judicial system that requires a trial by jury of one's peers, it's important to be relatively close to your location so your peers are actually your peers. So, so we wanted the federal government to be visible throughout the land. Correct. So they created a number of circuits. We still have circuits today. And Nine. the circuits are generally... Um, Contiguous states. Yes, they're they are regionally based. 
Uh, the circuits are different sizes, of course, because that's how our states also work. This is not a perfect system, friends. This is not a perfect system. It's well-intentioned, but not perfect. So in order to have justice in these circuits, the justices had to go to the circuits because there was no, at that time, there was no what we would consider to be an appellate level branch of government. There, there weren't enough judges to reside in those districts, and instead justices had to go to them. So the Supreme Court justices had to get in a carriage or on a horse and go to Georgia or go to Vermont or go to upstate New York or wherever and, and preside over a circuit court. And this was intended by the small R Republicans to keep the judicial system in touch with the real people of the United States and to make sure that the justices of the court didn't get too exalted a sense of who they were and what they represented. And it was a cost-saving efficiency at a time when we didn't have the apparatus that we currently have. But I can tell you this, almost every justice hated circuit riding and wanted it to end as quickly as possible. And let's explain why. It is. It sounds perfectly reasonable when you put it on paper. However, in places like Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, Western Virginia, Western Pennsylvania, there weren't really roads. And if there were roads, they were pretty bad quality and there weren't necessarily very good public accommodations. And if you were at a public accommodation place, you probably didn't have a lot of options. So that meant you were going to travel for days and days and days and days, sometimes weeks and months on dirty roads that were very uncomfortable. So like when we talk about dirty, I'm literally saying that John Jay would talk about his clothes just being absolutely covered with dust. You're obviously at risk of being in the elements because you're not in a, you know, enclosed taxi. Once you get there, you don't have a whole lot of control over the quality of your accommodation. So it is not unusual for them to be in places that are infested by ticks and lice and other sorts of varmints. Can I just interrupt to say, in other words, they had to live like average Americans had to live at this time. And they weren't just mollycoddled in the most splendid accommodations. You know, I was in Philadelphia the other day, my friend, and my host there said, is there air service in North Dakota? You people on the eastern seaboard with your assumption of privilege look on the rest of the country as some sort of impossible Australian outback. Well, oh my goodness, John Marshall might have to go to Richmond to preside over a case. Give me a break. The average American lived on those same roads with those same inns, with that same food, with the same lack of infrastructure that a justice of the Supreme Court did. And the whole idea was to keep them close to the people. My okay, goodness. that's hogwash for so many reasons. And here's why. First of all, the average American was not traveling, so they were not going on the roads, they were not going in inns, and when they did have to go on the roads, they complained about it, and in fact, they threw a whiskey rebellion because they didn't want to have to take their stuff all the way to the East Coast, so that's how much they hated That's the a roads. misreading of the whiskey rebellion, but go on. Psh, we should do a 10 things about the whiskey rebellion. No, let's do. Second... <laughs> Second. Uh, I'm going to have to have both of you take a deep breath. Uh, we need a time out here. She wrote she a snark pill today. Come on. No, no, they I'm had watching. to ride this circuits. Is very... She is our guest, Clay. Allow her to respond. We can't invite Lindsay to come to North Dakota. There's probably no hotel good enough for her here. I would be here. delighted to come to North Dakota. We, we do would... have air service, but you do have to ride a horse to get to the airport. So. I love horses. That sounds delightful. <laughs> um, second, most Americans 
did not actually live in varmint-infested places because they also hated these things and tried really hard to combat them. Finally, as you said, all justices hated this, even the justices that were not from the East Coast and coastal elitists like myself. So it was not just a John Jay and a John Marshall, even though he wasn't really from the coast. He's from interior Virginia. It was all justices. They all hated it, regardless of where they were from, because it was terrible, and the pay was not nearly enough to compensate them for traveling all over the country in these terrible conditions and being away from their family. When did it end forever? This will not like till the 1850s, I think. Well, it was supposed to end with the Judicial Act that was passed towards the end of Adams' presidency, and then Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson's administration repealed that to to send them back out on the road like every American. But Notice uh, he wasn't going out on the road. He did, too. And, you know, when he trapped with his grand... Have you read this? I guess you're just in the Washington world. We did a whole section last time uh, during about how he didn't want to leave home and go on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Let's let's move on to point number four. Help me with this, Clay. Stare decisis, it should stand as decided. So when the court makes a big pronouncement about something, about uh, uh, commerce across state lines or about uh, the Equal Protection Clause with respect to gay and lesbians or something like that, when the court makes a decision, particularly if it's more than a narrow decision, especially if it's an emphatic decision, that, that's either regarded as precedent if it comes at the beginning of our history or stare decisis if it comes later. And, and, and the reason for that, I'm eager for Lindsay to weigh in on this, but the, the reason for that is to give stability to our system so that the people know that's been decided. Take, for example, Roe v. Wade, 1973. That's been decided. They may you know, mess around a little on the edges of this, but that's settled law. And so this was designed to assure the American people that there was a majesty in the law, that it was not particularly political, that once something had been decided, they could have the assurance that that would continue to be the case unless circumstances changed in some very dramatic way. And so every time there's a, a hearing before the United States Senate for confirmation, the, the person who's being vetted says, oh, I'm very, of course, I believe in stare decisis. And they go on and on and on about this. It turns out that they don't necessarily subscribe to that notion. But to put it in a nutshell, it means if it's decided, and it's decided particularly by a large majority, it's unlikely that the court will go back and overturn that at a subsequent time. This actually might be the section in which we are in complete agreement. So Star decisis is especially important because we are supposed to be a country that is ruled by laws, not ruled by men. And it's one thing if you have a king that has divine rule and so therefore is the voice of God and can articulate what is the true and proper principle and everything flows down. But because we are a country of laws, it's very important that everyone has a shared understanding of what those laws are so you can have equal treatment under those laws and people can have access to the same resources and the same recourse in the event that they are wronged. So it's very important that lawyers understand what what the settled law is, what police officers, what judges of all different types understand. And, and, And you have to have a shared understanding such that people in California and people in Montana and people in Virginia have the same treatment under federal law. It's really, really important in a federal system. So let me just say to that for a moment that I don't want us to get don't go down the the black hole of Roe v. Wade, but when uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was being vetted in her confirmation hearings, when Brent Kavanaugh was being vetted in his, uh, and when Neil Gorsuch was being vetted in his, they all said, per Roe, we accept the notion of stare decisis. It would be very highly unusual if we didn't accept its 
um, stabilizing force in American law, etc. So if they decide, as it looks uh, as if they will do, to overturn Roe, or nearly so, they'll have some splaining to do. So uh, Louis Brandeis, who was a Supreme Court justice who was appointed by Woodrow Wilson and was the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, said that it was better that law be settled than settled right. And that's because it's so important to have this stability, especially in a large country where there are a lot of different places and different types of things. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. There are, are times when cases have been settled and they are just wrong. So Dred Scott. Dred Scott is an example. Plessy Karmatsu, versus Ferguson. Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of these examples where it's just wrong and our morality evolves. So the problem with the Roe hearings, and I'm not defending them because I think they were dishonest or at least were evasive in a way that is not becoming of a justice. No one ever asked the follow-up question of, would you then vote for this? They asked about stare decisis. They asked about this principle, but they didn't ask that key follow-up question. And we have, at the time of this recording, we're recording on June 13th, we have not seen the final decision, but at least based on the draft decision that in the Dobbs case that was uh, drafted by Alito, he basically is putting the Roe decision in the same category as Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott and saying it's so egregiously wrong that they can ignore stare decisis. And uh, one of my favorite podcasts has a has a phrase that says stare decisis is for suckers. And uh, it's it's sad now that we have to question how much of stare decisis is actually settled and how much they're willing to just throw away. And that leads us right into our next point, which is the political nature of the court. I'm always curious, as you know, that if you believe the polls, there is a, a clear majority of Americans who would uphold Roe. But the court is the final arbiter. Well, this is probably going to turn the issue of abortion back to the states, and then the people will um, have a greater voice in those decisions in state legislatures. That at least is the theory of those that would like to overturn Roe. But I want to say just this much about the politicization of the courts and, and then hear from Lindsay on this. They've always been political. We just know way, way, way more about it today than we ever did before. You know, when I was growing up long ago, they were nine men in black robes. Eventually, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor broke the gender um, uh, ceiling on the court. They were nine people. You sort of heard about them. They were they were majestic. They were aloof. They were they were titanic. They were like demigods on Olympus making these decisions, and we didn't know a lot about their lives, their personal lives, their views, even what they looked like um, for the most part. And so today with our 24-7, 365 media and social media and everything else, we know way, way, way too much to maintain that trope, that illusion any longer. But if you are a historian, as Lindsay is, you know that the court has been political from the very beginning, at times more so than others, but it has never been Plato's group of nine magnificently detached and wise human beings. I would add a bit of um, nuance to that. And so I, I just want to credit pretty much everything I know about the politicization of the court. I've learned from my friend, Rachel Sheldon. So um, I just want to acknowledge that expertise. But 
So the, the concept of an apolitical court was something that the court itself created in the second half of the 20th century as the power of the court began to expand. And it was a justification for this expanded power. In the 19th century, no one thought the court was apolitical. And that was partly because the court wasn't nearly as powerful. People would go on the court for a while and then they would go do other things. They would run for governor like Jay. They would run for president. They would run for Congress. They, you know, had shares in political newspapers. They're, they participated in campaigns. There was not this sense that they were supposed to be apolitical because the stakes weren't so high. They would, there was a sense that they could be apolitical enough while ruling on a particular case. But then the rest of the time, they were just no sort of normal people. And it wasn't until the second half of the 20th century in particular, when the court began to take on this enormous power as basically the final arbiter in our society, which I'm not actually totally sure the Constitution is intended to have it be. It's not clear. Um, it's not there, is it? Yeah. And it's not until that point that they had to sort of set themselves as something else because no other humans really were okay with as being this final arbiter. But if there are these special apolitical beings that somehow have extra special knowledge, then maybe it's okay for them to have this super intense power. And that's when we start to see the sort of public opinion in polls rise in approval of the Supreme Court along with this increased power and this increased notion of apoliticization. And it's not I would say, and I think most scholars agree, that this started to change a bit in 2000 with their decision in Bush v. Gore. And I'm not at all making a judgment about the outcome of the case, but that's when a lot of people started to question whether they were actually apolitical, especially because so many people that worked on that case have since become judges and even Supreme Court judges. So the case came down, as you know, David, five to four, and the five who affirmed the Bush uh, presidency had all been appointed been appointed by Republicans, and the four that did not, who voted against that decision, had all been appointed by Democrats. And so it sort of lifted the veil to the American people, and we had to think, uh-oh, maybe it's just another political arm of our government. We always thought it was so much more majestical than that, and things have gotten worse since. But I think Lindsay's rightly telling us there was a period maybe between Oliver Wendell Holmes back in the Theodore Roosevelt administration and maybe Justice Bork, who was a failed um, confirmee, that that period was sort of the least obviously partisan period in the history of the court. They, we, they were widely seen as doing the right thing. And now most Americans are somewhat or more disillusioned with that idea. We need to take a short break from this conversation. When we come back, there are a number of things on the list, including Marbury versus Madison, originalism, the madness of televised confirmation hearings. So we'll get to that, hopefully all of that, when we return. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our 10 Things Conversation about the Supreme Court with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsey Chervinsky. And this was talked about earlier, I think in segment one. Uh, I think, Lindsey, you brought up Marbury versus Madison. The key figures in Marbury versus Madison are, are not even necessarily Marbury and Madison so much as they are John Marshall, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. John Marshall had been serving as Secretary of State for John Adams, and when there was an opening for Chief Justice, John Adams appointed John Marshall. He was a Federalist. He was a Virginian. With the exception of Thomas Jefferson, he was fairly well respected because he was not one of these more radical Federalists like Alexander Hamilton or um, even Timothy Pickering. He was a brilliant legal mind, and he was one of the most influential Supreme Court justices in U.S. history. He was also one of Thomas Jefferson's cousins, and they despised each other. Would you like to take it from there, Clay? Jefferson said that Marshall had a loose, lounging manner, that he hung out in taverns and played billiards and things, which, <laughs> and so on. But, but here's the thing, David. The case is not of any importance except in this. Marshall had to make a decision. He was a constitutionalist. He wanted to strengthen the Constitution, uh, not weaken it. And so all of his 34 years as the Chief Justice, he read the Constitution in the most energetic way and tried to um, bolster the national government of the United States against the lingering anti-federalist views of, in much of the country. In Marbury v. Madison, he was involved with a minor office holder who had not been given his commission by the Jefferson administration. But what Marshall decided was that he couldn't provide any relief to poor William Marbury but, he said, it is emphatically the province of the Supreme Court to determine what the law is. And he struck down for the first time in American history a provision of a piece of legislation, one of the uh, passages in the Judiciary Act of 1789. So Jefferson barely even noticed that. All he thought was, I won. Marbury didn't get his job. But Marshall had planted a seed that has now become the most important of all the blossoms of the Supreme Court. That is that the court has the power to strike down provisions of legislation. It wasn't used again until Dred Scott, half a century later. Now it's used routinely, but Marshall effectively wrote in a new doctrine into the Constitution uh, in that famous case. So it's, it's always the first case that students get in constitutional law at law school. It was masterfully argued and even though Jefferson could not stand Marshall and disagreed principally with Marshall's idea of the role of the courts, it has to be said that Marshall was at least one of the top three justices in American history and arguably the most important. What say you, Lindsay? No, I agree with that. And what was so brilliant about this decision is he gave Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Republicans nothing to fight about because he gave them what they wanted. He did not give the position to Marbury. So there was no sort of recourse in that particular way. There was nothing for them to latch onto other than some words. So it was really the ultimate chess move in that he was playing the long game and establishing the role of the court rather than nitpicking over these individual positions. Amazing, David. It's, it's you know, it, Jefferson got bested in this one. Um, but I don't think even Marshall knew how important the court would become in American history. Well, let's move on to the next point, originalism and the problems of race and gender. Well, Dred Scott is the most famous case here. So 
1857, the court decided that a black person uh, had no rights, which the Constitution of the United States was bound to respect. That is a originalist position. And uh, unfortunately, originalism puts you into some very bad doctrine and some really bad company. And so the originalists today say, well, that was undone by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and so on. But the fact is that the founders wanted an all-white male America. They didn't want African Americans to be citizens. They weren't willing to take on the problem of slavery, except in very small instances. They were not willing to empower women. They ruled Native Americans out as, as foreign nations, like France or Denmark. Uh, these were people living in a three-mile-per-hour world. The Founding Fathers were routinely highly educated and privileged and owners of property. And the idea that what they originally intended for us should continue to um, have a special place in jurisprudence in the 21st century is a form of madness, I think. What say you, Lindsay? I agree. The concept of originalism was a creation that came about in response to Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal state. So there wasn't originalist policy. There wasn't originalist judicial philosophy until the 1930s, 1940s. It was then picked up and run with by the likes of Rehnquist and Scalia. Initially, originalism said that the Constitution should be interpreted literally, what the words said on the page. When then historians pointed out that that didn't really always make sense, they shifted that interpretation to say that it should be what the general understanding of the terms of the Constitution were at the time. Now, the problem is, as Clay pointed out, how do you get at what the general understanding was at the time? Are you looking at a couple of opinions in the Federalist Papers? Or are you talking to the vast majority of people who didn't leave a written record? And of course you're not, because time travel is not possible. I would highly recommend, there are a couple of articles, they're available online in what's called the Process Blog, which is the Organization of American Historians, by a scholar named Jonathan Ginyap. His last name is spelled G-I-E-N-A-P-P. He is, I think, the most brilliant historian explaining this concept of originalism and why, these are my words, not his, why I think it is a lazy construction, does not account for a lot of the complexities and nuances that we talk about every single time we're talking about history because history is incredibly complex. I'd like to move on to the next point, the madness of televised confirmation hearings. The first hearing for Supreme Court justice was for Louis Brandeis because a lot of people were uncomfortable with having a Jewish justice, including future Supreme Court justice Taft. He did not attend because he thought it was beneath him and it was ridiculous. The concept of a televised confirmation hearing, in theory, I like. I, I generally think that it's good to have transparency and for the American people to have access to the inner workings of government, in theory and in principle, when people are acting like responsible adults. Anyone who has watched a hearing understands that most of them are not acting like responsible adults. Television plus the United States senator is already a recipe for chaos. But David, it's not just that the senators misbehave. Of course, they do, most of them. But it's also that the candidate, uh, the nominee, is, is trained, is, is um, heavily shaped by advisors not to reveal much. Because if you reveal how you really feel about privacy or how you really feel about weapons or how you really feel about a woman's reproductive life, 
then that gives your enemies or the administration's enemies a handle with which to try to deny you the seat. And so they are groomed to be vague and noncommittal. And so, we, Lindsay, we lose the very thing we have to have, which is what we want to know is, Lindsay, if we're going to put you for life on a court, we want to have a sense of how you see the law, how you're likely to decide in certain things, whether your personal religious views or your status as a woman or your status as a mother or not as a mother, your status as a lesbian or a heterosexual, your status as, as a white American or a black American. Will this influence in any way what you, how you decide these cases? And of course they will. You, there's nobody that isn't influenced by their upbringing. And so then they lie to us and so they begin their distinguished life-tenured career by lying to the American people about the things we most need to know when we put people in, in charge of that much raw power. Well, well said. We have to end it. We need to, we, we need to move back. So what we need to do is either... Well, here's what Jefferson thought. I'll bet Lindsay disagrees with me on this. Jefferson thought that the president nominates, and unless the Senate thinks there is a a lack of... that the president nominates, and unless the Senate believes that the person is not qualified, they should affirm that the president is entitled to surround himself with the people of his own political and judicial stamp. And so the only question to be asked is, is this person qualified to be a justice on the court? But even how is that determined? So I would argue that we still need some sort of investigation, because I think even if someone is judicially qualified. Maybe they've gone to all the best schools, they've served. Let's say they have real bad behavior in in their their backstory, hypothetically, of course. And they have closets in their skeleton, that skeletons in their closet. And um I would argue that there's a judicial if someone is going to have as much power as a Supreme Court justice is going to have and if they're going to be nominated when they're 50 and they're going to serve for over 30 years then it's it's not just the qualifications on the paper there should be a judicial temperament and I'm not sure how one gets at that. I wonder if closed hearings would be effective because then it there wouldn't be recordings, there wouldn't be TV, there would be, you know, sort of like we have uh, Congress has intelligence briefings all the time so that they can communicate with intelligence agencies. I wonder if that would be a middle ground. I'm not totally sure, but I can tell you that there are a lot of people with all the best qualifications, and I don't trust their moral judgment to actually have that kind of power. And so I think that there has to be some other way of getting at this position. Okay, I want to move to another point. This was uh, suggestions of the various reform commissions, but I'd like to expand on that. I would very much like to hear from the both of you what you would do were you empowered to change the court, to reform the court. I can be really simple about mine. I would have a maximum 18-year term. That, of course, will require a constitutional amendment. I would have um, the um, vetting process changed. I would have um, a commission, a blue ribbon commission, to put forward five candidates for the president. And the president would choose from those five extremely able candidates, and the Senate would have a kind of up-and-down vote. Uh, and, until we solve the problem of demagoguery and television, I don't think that the hearings do us any good whatsoever, and they often descend into real madness, where you see uh, someone like Lindsey Graham just slathering and spitting into the microphone, or Brent Kavanaugh or Clarence Thomas talking about 
electronic lynchings and so on. This is demeaning to the candidate, it's demeaning to the Senate, it's demeaning to the to the public. And so I would go to shortened terms and have uh, a much um, more Spartan um, nomination process and, a, and, and less power for the Senate to grandstand. So I agree with some of that. I think the problem with the concept of a blue ribbon commission is that it would just transfer the political nature to that um, or to the list. So I agree with the 18 year term. What I would do is I would start, I would, I would actually include the emeritus position because I think there are times when having more than nine votes would be helpful if you have a particular type of case or if you have, um, you know, if you're trying to adjudicate whether or not a judge should Maybe maybe you have all the emeritus judges decide whether or not a judge should abstain from a particular case if, say, his wife is involved in an insurrection, hypothetically, of course. Um, and so I think that what would, would be helpful is you have the 18-year term, you cycle it every two years. So every two years, a president appoints a new Supreme Court justice. So everyone knows that every presidential term means two new justices. And that would make very obvious the political stakes of this decision, because now there's a lot of gamesmanship and trying to delay hearings and figure out when people should retire and all of that stuff. And if it's every two years, then it's very obvious the stakes. If there's the emeritus position, then I think it would be helpful to have that additional panel from time to time, especially for ethics questions. And I think that that might make the amendment process a little bit easier because it's not making these people stay on. It's not taking away this privilege from justices. It's just transitioning the role a little bit. So that would be my suggestion. David and Lindsay, I think it's incumbent on us. We're, we're recording this just in the middle of June before the great decision is going to come down from the court on Roe. Uh, we all have a sense of foreboding about it, whatever your politics and whatever your position is on abortion. I'll give my view and then I want each of you to give yours. I think we should have left it alone. Uh, abortion is uh, an extremely complex problem and it's already um, a morally fraught part of our lives to add criminality to it for doctors and for women is, in my opinion, uh, the worst possible response. I think Bill Clinton was right when he said abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. Lindsay. When Justice Rehnquist was on the court, the Miranda rights came before the court. And he said that initially he wanted to overturn them because he felt that the case was deeply problematical. But then he realized that they had become such an ingrained part of our society. They're on every TV show, every, or every cop TV show, that people understood that that was how things worked. And so he felt, like Brandeis had said, that it was better law be settled than be settled right. There are a lot of people that have really good faith objections to how Roe was decided. But it is it has been settled law for a very long time. It is part of our society for a very long time. It does not mean that people cannot if they believe it is the right thing to do, find other ways to try and make abortion less frequent, to make it less of a less of a desirable outcome. I would also say, and I agree with you, Clay, that they should be safe, they should be rare. By the time an abortion has happened, there has been a failure in some, some way. There has been a failure of society to give women options to prevent that pregnancy. There has been potentially violence or abuse, or there has been something like a, a catastrophic injury such that it is going to be either a non-viable 
child or there is going to be a threat to the mother. It is a failure. No one wants to get an abortion. That is not something anyone plans. It's not fun. It's a terrible experience. It's not enjoyable. We should not be making more women do it in back alleys. Instead, we should find ways to help them avoid it altogether. I am still struck with this idea of three co-equal branches of government. If our happy republic is going to have any chance of surviving, that has to exist. This may be off the topic of the Supreme Court, but I think we, we have to start with the filibuster. The Founding Fathers didn't intend that, and it, it has just led to, to madness. So I, I really enjoyed this conversation this week. I always learn so much from the both of you. I wish I could do better at keeping you from squabbling as much as well, you do. Well, you know, we started it, it, off it with a little problem. But we have, so, we have so much fun. But David, you, of course, successfully ducked the road question, as I predicted that you would. Of course. Uh, of course. Well, if I could just say one other thing, which is I know that this is a... We, we don't often talk about issues that people feel so deeply and strongly about personally. And I recognize that there are deep feelings out there and emotional feelings out there. I guess my plea to everyone listening is to recognize that I am in no way saying that your feelings are not valid, but I would hope you would also say to someone else who disagrees with you that their feelings are valid. And I think that's the best we can do with this really tricky subject. David, the squabbling is part of the joy of it. I, you know, our listeners can't see. Hey, don't give away the secrets here. They, they can't <laughs> see the, the mean, ugly, wrathful, snarky, sarcastic, eye-rolling <laughs> looks. Jefferson oh, geez, did you hear that? Each week by what? Sky it's the credits. Education. It's the credits. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>